Welcome to Let's Face the Facts. I'm David Almeida, and I'm your host for this rewatch podcast for the classic sitcom, The Facts of Life. I'm an actor in Orlando, Florida, and every week I bring you some of the greatest talent in the Central Florida arts community. Join us as we synopsize, analyze, criticize, and ultimately idolize the show, episode by episode. Hey guys, welcome back. It's another week, another Wednesday, another show. Thank you so much for downloading and pressing play. Uh, I am at a Super Bowl party right now. Can you hear it playing in the background? Yeah, I, it's, it's a long set of circumstances that have brought me to this and I just look at the screen and scream and yell when the other people scream and yell. But anyhow, we're doing it very safe. It's already within my bubble and uh, all that other fun stuff. So please do not worry about me as far as the pandemic. Worry about me as far as what in the world I'm doing with a sporting event happening in my life. Anyway, my guest this week is Paul Padilla. Paul is back. He had told me he loves this episode and he's a big fan of season six. And uh, so this is the one I wanted to hear what he thought about. And uh, before we get started with it, though, I do need to welcome a new Tutti Fruity, Stacy R. Hey, Stacy, how are you? Thank you so much for being a part of the family. If you want to be like Stacy R, you can go to patreon.com and support the show. And for a $3 a month donation, you get an additional podcast with me and Matthew Arder talking about all kinds of crazy TV stuff facts of life adjacent so this week paul padilla and i watched season six episode 14 me and eleanor which had an original air date of january 2nd 1985 i think we're ready to jump on in let's face the facts with paul padilla all the way live from new braunfels texas he's back paul padilla Thank you. You remember New Braunfels. Nice. I am in a little different setup. My audio quality is going to be a little bit different. And uh, that's that's how it is. You know what? You, you take it, you leave it. You're still getting your money's worth, dear, dear listeners. You take the good, you take the bad. Yes. And <laughs> time has gone by so quickly as far as your history of this podcast. Like you're already what? This is season six, correct? Yeah, and we're in the second half. It's it's starting to wind down now. It's going to be over before we know do, it. David, what are you going to do? <laughs> I have I have thoughts. I have ideas. We will discuss later. But we are we're not going to be talking about the future. We are talking about the present, the here and now, and the wonderful me and Eleanor. Originally broadcast January 2nd of 1985. Happy New Year. Yes. One of my favorite episodes, actually. It really is. It's always been one of my favorites. Um, since oh. I was, yeah. yeah. I'm so glad. I detested this. <laughs> I figured you do. Well, this is also my favorite season, which is this is why we're opposite in that. We think you didn't like this season. And I love this season. So it's just. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm still struggling. We had a couple of good ones. And uh, this is one where. But but we'll get into it because, of course, this was written by one of my favorite Facts of Life writers, Paul Haggis. Yeah, who went on to do great things. Wah, wah. I was being facetious. Dear. Oh, you were? I'm not a fan. I'm Didn't not he a win fan. An Oscar? Didn't he win an Oscar like for screenplay for Crash or something? For screenplay for Million Dollar Baby. 
Oh, yeah. And then the following year for both writing and directing, Crash. Crash so yeah, yeah. it was, I think it was 03 and 04, where those were like the two big Paul Haggis years at the Oscars. Yeah. And this was directed by John Boab, the wonderful, our new in-house director. So yeah, I've already given my quick, short, uh, personal review where as we're about to get into it, I just want to make it very clear. This is a horrible episode and I absolutely fucking hated it. It's one of my favorites, <laughs> which I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yep. So as, as it's one of your favorites, Paul, this is the perfect moment in the show to say, mm-hmm. Paul Padilla, would you please give me the one to two sentence synopsis like you might see in a TV guide of the entire episode. I hate this, and I forgot. I to, and I forgot to prepare for it. Oh, <laughs> oh lordy! Oh gosh! Okay. Um, Natalie and Tootie's friendship is put to the test when tensions arise before a local theater competition. That's okay. It. That's it. Okay, that was great. That was wonderful. Yeah. And um, I, I did do some editing there. That was the 47th take, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Paul. yes. Now, of course, we'll get to it later. If I had my ways, it would be like, Andy Moffat enters the picture, you know, because we'll get to that later. But yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that would be my real reason for loving this episode as a kid. Yes, but. yeah. And that's kind of the reason why I am I have you here for this one. I kind of picked <laughs> it specifically because you had said it was one of your favorites. I hadn't watched it. Yeah, uh, obviously. But the fact that it is the first Andy Moffat episode where we first meet Mackenzie Aston, And uh, yeah, you wonder if they had a sense that he was going to be around a while, I guess, by the end of the, you know, how the episode ends, that is indicated. But we also had this recent episode where Mrs. Garrett was studying algebra with that little boy, Craig. Uh, played by the kid from Revenge of the Nerds. And part of it was like, well, did they maybe at some point think maybe this kid will hang around? Will this be our next Kelly? I was going to ask you about that because it just so happened the reruns on TV right now, which are completely edited, but they're in chronological order. And I didn't realize that it was just like two episodes before. And I thought maybe they tried him out, didn't like him for some reason. I was going to ask you what you thought, because I never thought of that. I didn't mm-hmm. realize that the order of that was, but you could see if, you know, Mrs. G was going to school, that this might be a regular kid. Um, you know, it, they give him a personality. Natalie thought he was weird because he was so smart, you know, and yeah. And then he was gone. But, but then he won her over. So there was a sense that he could have been somehow incorporated into the part of the, in, in, into being a part of the family, but I don't know either. And I also do want to go on record saying I love Andy in the show. As we go forward, I, in my recent rewatch of the later episodes, recent being like, you know, two, three years ago, I was constantly impressed with how sharp his timing is for a kid so young. And uh, it's not quite fully formed here. You can tell he's still a little timid there's the confidence isn't there but he's perfectly appealing and uh i'm glad they stuck it out with him if they if they had to add a child uh, a la little house on the prairie if it's like we have to adopt another younger kid and bring him in i'm glad they they decided to use him yeah i could tell with this one you know he, he had these little smirks like he like you could tell like he wanted to have a reaction or do something but he didn't do it yeah he just kind of started it but you know Mm -hmm. 
we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about him when he actually comes into the episode. But before okay. that, uh, let us begin the synopsis with uh, what is going on with the others, because his story is technically the B story. Mm-hmm. Um, well, start, the whole episode starts with one of those rare things where you have the pretty flute piano music and then you see the outside of Edna's edibles. When I was a kid, I would geek out when that happened because I felt like, oh, you know, I'm seeing a little bit more of what they see when they're coming into the store and stuff. Very rarely do you see these little outside shots. Yes, that's the first thing I have in my notes is that we have this opening music and an exterior shot of the store of the sign Edna's edibles. And similarly to uh, The Rich Aren't Different, which is the episode we just did two weeks ago, uh, it ends with a little piano riff. Mm-hmm. And then it dissolves to this same exterior shot. And then they roll the credits and play the clap track. Mm-hmm. And these are two aesthetically very different things that they don't typically do. And now there are two of them in the same episode. This is definitely rumblings of what is coming because season, once we hit season seven, it is always opening music, closing music. Yeah. And uh, it's so funny how they're only dipping their toe in the pool. I did go back and pull up the videos of every subsequent episode this season to see if it was now, is this music at the end a standard set thing? And it's not. More often than not, there's still no music at the end of the episode, but it does happen uh, spottily. It does happen. At least that it was very special as, as a yeah. child. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the action of the episode is Mrs. Garrett on the phone, all happy and excited because she just got the contract to cater the after theater party. And in true Charlotte Ray fashion, I got it. I got it. This is actually yeah. it. very exciting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so Natalie, thankfully, is on hand to be like, she got it, she got it. What did she get? And Blair and Joe were like, Ugh, the after theater party, all the right people are going to be there. Just the big event of the year, apparently, in Peekskill, New York at this time. Yeah. So at this point in the show, I'm like, the theater awards party. My question, where my brain goes initially is, they really have that much theater in Peekskill that they have an awards party? <laughs> Well, this is like, you know, they didn't have streaming. They didn't have all Netflix and Apple TV. They had, you know, the movies and probably a couple theaters, maybe some. But, I mean, we're talking, Blair says all the right people are going to be there. If these are community theater awards, it's probably not going to be rich people. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, you know, people that donate, you know, donate to yeah, the arts. Benefactors of the arts and all that. But um, it's just interesting. Um, so all I'm saying is that's where my brain initially goes. So I'm just like, huh, interesting. Just some theater awards. Um, this episode never had a chance with you, did it, David? No, we're in, the first, no. we're in the first minute and a half. Yeah. Oh, and it gets worse. <laughs> Don't worry. It gets much worse. Uh, so Joe does point out that, yes, like Blair is saying, the right people are there, uh, meaning this is going to be a lot of return business because this other company was undercutting them typically. So this is the first year they have won this bid. And um, we do have to do a little hair check. Blair's hair, a little more mullety. It's horrible. It's horrible. Yeah. Not her best hair. No, when she has the worst hair of all of them, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. But the worst hair for Blair is the, the rich aren't different, the one where she goes to court. That hair was like she literally looked like she rolled out of bed and maybe ran a brush through it. It was really 
really bad. I saw, Joe, one, interview, I saw one interview with her like on the Merv Griffin show, uh, and uh -huh. it looked, she sings like a Jesus song. Uh, it was that exact same hair. Like, she that's how she had her hair, and that's how she went on national television with yeah. that hair, as herself, you know? Yeah, but sometimes the sides were a little bit broader. This case, it was like they deliberately uh, pasted down the sides to be close to her head, full on the top, business in front. And instead of a party in the back, it was like they blew it out straight. Like it looked like like a Billy Ray Cyrus or something. It totally did. Yeah. Yeah. It was not really a good look. Now, Joe, on the other hand, the ponytail has come down. And like I've said before, the beginning half of this season is my favorite Joe hair. In this case... She's had that hair and went in for a trim and somehow trimming the awesome Joe hair, bringing the length just up to her shoulders. She now looks like a 45 year old soccer mom. Yes, she does. And, but, you know, but I feel like we're, we're at this weird midway point from no ponytail because, you know, we all know in a couple of years it gets wacky crazy. So yeah. this is like, this is like, okay, let's just keep it right there. Let's not do anything nutty. Yeah. It doesn't get nutty. Like with the nut, mullet, whatever. Blizzard. Yeah. I mean, yeah. at least it looks well styled. It looks better styled than Blair's. It's just that eighties hair where a 20 year old girl looks like a 45 year old secretary. It's, it's okay. terrible. Shoulder pads are starting to happen, you know, in mm. the fashion. Yeah. Their shoulders are getting broader and their tails on their shirts, you know. Yeah. You're getting longer. Oh, yeah. No, no. The 80s is so infiltrating this. And then uh, next season, it's going to get awesome costuming wise. I can't wait for that. Um, so when Mrs. Garrett says, all right, we're, we're doing this big event. This is a big deal for us. And I'm going to need a lot of help. And Blair's like, well, you can count on me. And Joe's like, me too. And I'm thinking, yeah, you fucking work there. Yeah, she's going to count on you. You're her goddamn employees. What the hell? Don't do her any favors. Yeah. But, you know, now, if the girls had said, this is how I have to tweak this. If the girls had said, well, it's right between exams, so I'm very free and available. We can both, yeah, me too. Let's jump on it. You know, the idea that, oh, this is good timing because our studies aren't going to interfere. Because we know Mrs. Garrett would never say, fuck your studies, you're working for me. Um, that's a, that'd be just a little tweet there. But Natalie is like, well, you guys have fun. Again, you're an employee. You don't decide whether you work or not. And then Natalie's excuse is it's kind of a, I guess she feels a conflict of interest because, and here we go, every year, Tootie enters the theater contest for these theater awards and Natalie writes a play for her. Every year. It, every year. First of all, never heard of this before. That's bullshit. And secondly, wait a minute. These are theater awards. This is awards for theater that presumably has already happened. Now what I'm hearing is this is a competition of some sort attached to nothing academic that we can see and nothing that is it, it, not even a mention of the Peekskill Playhouse, where we know Tootie was very upset she didn't get the summer internship back when her mother was visiting her at the end of last season. Uh, it, it's like this, it's just this nebulous, floating out there thing of the, 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 the frustration and my, my brain turning to mush over this is that thing of, is nobody in the writer's room? of a television sitcom in any way connected to the theater and understands how 
theater works and how plays are produced. And apparently not in Los Angeles, Burbank, California in 1985. Apparently not. Apparently not. Because we've talked about before whenever like, oh, we have a theater actor is one of the characters. And so he comes in and is talking like this. And you're like, well, okay, not everybody is like that. This is where the episode lost me. And at no point did it ever rope me back in. At three minutes in, two minutes and 20 seconds in. <laughs> exactly. So Tootie's up for an award for acting in a play, in a performance that they've never seen. So do they grant the award? This, this sounds like the thespian conference that happens at high schools regionally here in Florida, where a group of judges sit around a table and then students come in, you know, give a monologue or a group number or something. And then the judges write in their responses and then the responses are uh, valued and tallied. And then at the end, there's uh, awards are given out. What this should have been is some type of an event connected to academia. If it was Langley College and their theater department holding a big um, banquet event during which they celebrate theater and the up and coming students from the local high schools. I think they only got like 22 minutes though. <laughs> So I know. If it makes you feel better, as a kid, I always envisioned it happening at Langley. So I always just, thought in my head it's at the Langley Auditorium. That's where my well, head. All right, Paul, then let's go with the next thing where they lose David in this episode. <laughs> if this is a function that happens at Langley or is in any way, shape, or form connected with academia, why is this function happening at Edna's Edibles, which is a retail fucking store? It's a very small store, too, of, to have a Gee. big theater award. But she, said, she said they had to get the boxes of China. Joe tells them, oh, we yeah. need to have boxes of China. I'm like, well, why do you need China for? There's like 12 people in there. But that's all right. But it's, you know, whatever. I mean, TV. Edna's Edibles okay. is a caterer. No question. I'm okay with that. But typically, a caterer is different from a function hall. Or a caterer has an affiliation with some type of a play, the you know the Elks Lodge or something. They have a venue, and this is—they might have blown their wad on the budget for last week with the courtroom. They couldn't yeah. couldn't make anymore, so they're like they're the budget person. Like it has to be at Edibles. We're not spending yeah. any money. I spent all that money on that damn courtroom last week. But the thing is, if you're <laughs> having an event connected with a theater. The obvious place where this should be happening is in the theater, if not in the auditorium afterwards, on the stage after they've cleared the set, in the lobby where people would gather anyway. There's just, there are such obvious places in the theater world, in the theater as a building where this could happen. So why is this happening in the retail store where people could fucking pocket jars of pickles and steal them blind? <laughs> I uh, that's that's another separate thing. So we have the issue of this this nebulous concept of theater awards, but they don't say what the awards are for. And then within that, apparently Natalie writes a play, and it's a week before the event. So uh, this this brilliant work of you know the next work from Shakespeare is going to be written in a week, and and then it's performed that same night. But it's a play. They keep saying it's not a monologue. It's not a scene. It's not a character study. They keep calling it a play. So what other plays happened? What was Tootie competing against? 
And where were the other performers and people involved in that? Because they would have, they would, I think, be entitled to go to this function that Edna is catering. What's <laughs> happening? I don't want to tell you, David. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I get everything you're saying, but I just figured, I guess they figure 22 minutes or whatever it is and mm-hmm. one unit set and, you know, let's just crank this one out, I guess. But yeah, but, you know, very valid points. Very valid yeah. points. Okay, it doesn't bother me at all, but yeah. <laughs> I, I think I've harped on it enough here. Uh, so what it culminates in is we do need this help. Natalie says she's going to be busy writing this play for Tootie. And of course, Tootie's going to be rehearsing and competing. And so it's like, we, we need to hire somebody. This is too big a thing. So a little bit of Natalie having a sign that she writes up called Man Wanted. That's all she has. Yep. And funny moment when Tootie walks into the store and she's like, oh, Natalie, is it getting that tough? <laughs> and that was pretty funny because it is very Natalie to walk around with a yeah, sign. I'm afraid to say this, David. I'm afraid to say this, but I think uh, Natalie's timing in this episode is fantastic throughout the entire episode. I think she's really funny and she delivers her lines really well. The comedy of it. Yes. But, I, I will agree with you 150%. Yeah. I think, and, I think she's really showcased. Well, she took all the opportunities she could mm-hmm. to make, make the funny. And she has a lot of them in the 22 minutes. Yeah. yeah which she needs to do because Tootie is a horrible, miserable garbage person in this episode. <laughs> I mean, I could kind of agree with that one. I could, yeah. I, I could give you that one. That one I can. Yeah. We're going to yeah. get to that too. We have so much to discuss. Yeah. We're going to be here 17 hours. Um, it's a good thing I got a new computer that, that keeps the juice for a long time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we have a little scenelet here cut from syndication that if folks only watch the episode through uh, the Daily Motion link, uh, I do have to point this out because this is part of the dialogue where, again, it's like, how do writers for a sitcom not have some type of understanding of playwriting, writing for the theater? And this is where they're just being ridiculous in the name of being funny, as opposed to uh, setting it in some type of a foundation of plausible reality. So I'm going to say, and I, here's the thing. I, because we have this new website with the transcripts of the episodes. Oh. Guess what? I get to read the dialogue verbatim. Okay, great. This is what was cut. Tootie, I have to talk to you about the play. I have a great idea for this year. Our mistake in the past has been going with the traditional one woman show. Well, you're going to love this. Picture it. The curtain parts, the lights come up. There's a barrel on stage. Then we hear your voice. Help me, I'm inside a barrel. Somebody please let me out. And then Tootie says, and? And Natalie says, nobody does. And Tootie says, I'm in a barrel for the whole play. And Natalie says, isn't it great? And Tootie's like, no one will see me. They won't even know I'm in there. And Natalie's like, ah, sure they will. You're talking through the whole thing. One monologue about how you'd like to get out of the barrel, but you don't know how. You pray, you curse, you struggle. And finally, you tip over and roll into the orchestra pit. Ha-ha! <laughs> I vaguely remember that. Vaguely remember that. So Tootie is understandably put off by this, as am I. Yes. 
because I mean, we're talking like there's a there's a great is it Samuel Beckett the play Happy Days? Happy Days, and that's the one where Charlotte Ray was in. She, yeah, she Charlotte, it. that's right. She did it afterwards. It it's up to, her, up, up to her neck and sand and yeah. It's it's a it's a one woman show where she is. I think in Act One she's buried in a pile of sand up to her waist, mm-hmm. and then for Act Two it's up to her neck. So she is just a head sticking out of a pile of sand. Yeah, but at least you got to see her face. Where Natalie just wants to put Tootie in a barrel, which, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's not going to win any competitions. Continuing with this cut scene is where Tootie says, "So why do I have to be in a barrel?" And Natalie says, "It's a metaphor." For what? Life. Life is a barrel and you can't get out. Ever. It's experimental. It's avant-garde. Like Ionesco's Rhinoceros. I'm calling it Tooties in a Barrel. (laughs) Maybe Tootie could have said something to the effect of, uh, don't you think that's a little bit too Mm -hmm. avant-garde? And maybe to me, I think probably a, a, a Good argument on Tootie's part is, yeah, this is a competition where I'm competing as an actress. This sounds like a different play you should write for something else where you're competing for the writing award. This is a play that sounds like it wants to be more about the writer than the performer. Yeah. That's, that's just me. That's just me. But <laughs> any who's all. Yeah. Yeah. So this, yeah, this, I think I've probably seen that scene maybe twice because yeah, I never, I, I always watched the syndicated versions, you know, when I was a kid. And, but I do remember it from watching the DVD. Very, very. It's that same thing though. It's like, who would, on top of this ridiculous award ceremony and this ridiculous competition, non-competition, whatever the fuck it is, now on top of it to be like, and you're going to win by me putting you in a barrel when no one can see you. Uh, it's, it, we have just, the, the good ship facts of life has set sail. I was not on board. I am at the pier and I'm waving saying better you all than me out there on that fucking Titanic right now. <laughs> There's my bad metaphor for the many bad metaphors going on here. But we come back from this cut bit. Now, if you're watching the syndicated version, enter a little boy, a cute, adorable, sweet little boy, and not just any boy. My question to you is, was that happening before he entered? Because when you watch the syndicated version, like they put up the sign, he comes right in with the sign. So did that happen in between that? I was always like, that was a little quick. The kid just happened to be walking by the street when they put up the sign. Okay, got it. Yeah. So then he comes in. Yeah, you're right that it was a very quick turnaround. That's why, because of this omission. Um, But this is not just any little boy. This is Andy Moffat, who is going to become a regular recurring cast member between now and the end of the series. And a bit of a boy crush for young, budding gay boy Paul Padilla in New Braunfels, Texas. I was in love with Andy Moffat, love with Mackenzie Aston. And, you know, he was absolutely one of my first crushes as a kid. And I started thinking today, like, he was probably, like, the most age-appropriate because I, th- I remember, like, first crushes being, like, Clint Eastwood and uh, <laughs> not knowing why, not knowing why, you know what I mean? Just watching Every Which Way But Loose and feeling something. And uh, mm-hmm. and Christopher Plummer, who just passed away in The Sound of Music. I know. I always remembered thinking Captain Von Trapp was just so, you know, dapper and classy and handsome and so yeah he was a first crush so this is probably like my first <laughs> it was probably more age appropriate for me at the time when i was you know yeah he's a year older than me i think i saw um when i looked it up today 
He was born mm -hmm. in 73 and I was born in 74. So yes, Andy Moffat. Mm -hmm. Who were your Andy. crushes? Who were your crushes when you were a kid? Like um I didn't have a lot that I lusted. I was I, I came to you know, even crushing on and my coming out and stuff, that all happened late for me. Yeah. But um, I remember I really enjoyed Glenn Scarpelli on One Day yes. at a Time. Yes. Uh, so Alex was the role that he played. I remember I, I was really liking that. I remember uh, enjoying Greg Brady on his surfboard and the yes. close-up of the tiki around his neck where you could see his chest and his, his nips. And then thinking, I like that and I'm not sure why. Yeah. I think it's but, hilarious uh, that like now with Instagram and stuff, you know, the other day uh, I had a story and Glenn Scarpelli liked it and you freak out even though, you know, uh, yeah, there's no reason to freak out. He's just liking something that he sees, but it's just, it cracked me up that I'm like, Glenn Scarpelli liked my story. You know, <laughs> yes. it's, it's hilarious. You, you just feel like you're connected. It's funny. It's funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about, um, about Mackenzie Aston, the, mm -hmm. the actor who portrays Andy. Uh, he was born in, uh, he was born on May 12th, 1973. This was taped in December of 84, so he is 11 years old. Uh, he shares a birthday with Kim Fields and Diana Eden. Hmm. Different years, obviously, for all of them, but all of them, May 12th is their thing. Diana Eden being, of course, my close personal friend who's the costumer for season seven, eight, and nine. I don't know if anyone uh, I might have mentioned that at any point on the show. No, I have to read that book. I, I, it sounds amazing. I think I've mentioned it before, but that means Diana Eden dressed me as a kid because I modeled my outfits in life or whatever Mackenzie Aston was wearing on the show. <laughs> I would show it to my mom and she would go and find as close as she could to, so if he had like a gray suit, I had this cool gray suit. If he had a thing with suspenders, I had shows, you know, it just, it's so, so basically I had Dana Eden, you know, dressed me for my childhood. Oh. So thanks Diana. Thanks Diana. <laughs> I'll be sure to tell herself. Yeah. Yes. So Mackenzie Aston is the only son of Patty Duke and John Aston. John Aston, we will recall, was on the Facts of Life in episode one of this season. Uh, the man at the piano bar with whom Mrs. Garrett had a blue, blue tuxedo, <laughs> his, his powder blue tux and his ruffled shirt. Uh, she had a sort of fling, but a not a fling with him. We we're like, they might have fucked in the bathroom, but we're not sure. <laughs> but his his absence, whatever he was doing with Mrs. Garrett. Uh, that was where we, it was revealed that Joe was also a performance level lounge <laughs> piano singer entertainer. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. And we know I have big problems with that. <laughs> yeah. Now, some people may be shouting at their podcatchers right now or in their cars saying, David, he is not the only son of Patty Duke and John Aston. You're forgetting Sean Aston, his brother, uh, star of the Goonies. Uh, and the Lord of the Rings movies and all that. Well, it was my great surprise to discover that Sean and Mackenzie are only half-brothers. Yes. Sean is Patty Duke's son, but uh, John Aston adopted him very early on in life. So in comes this little boy with the sign, and he's like, I want the job. And he says, I'm a quick learner, I'm anxious to work, and I'll do just about everything. And uh, and he even says he's desperate and he needs the job. And 
one of them, Joe, was like, oh, you what, what do you got, like a single mom, you're struggling to make ends meet, want to contribute to the household? And he says, no, I'm saving up for my first date. Yes. So the girls say, okay, child, we might hire you. Let's take you into the kitchen and meet Mrs. Garrett. Because hiring an 11-year-old boy, perfectly cool, no uh, ethical implications, no labor issues there whatsoever. Come on, let's go talk more. And I did love the way he delivered that. I'm a quick learner. I da, 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 da. It's just kind of how people do when they go in for a job interview. An adult would talk that way, you know. And so yeah. this kid, knowing that inflection, I thought was really funny. That you know, kind of cute. Yeah. That he would know. That's what adults would say in an interview with that kind of inflection. You know. But yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So this is the point, Paul, where I start saying I'm going to be quickly going through the rest of the episode. Like we've laid the foundation. And I'm going to yeah. try my best to not uh, go this crazy with it. Breathe, uh, breathe, breathe, breathe. Okay. <laughs> breathe. Uh, if I can do this, I don't know. So then Tootie and Natalie come in as they are exiting uh, the, as, as they are, as Blair and Joe are taking Andy into the kitchen, Tootie and Natalie are coming out of the kitchen. And this is where the, the conflict is set into motion, where Tootie says, Natalie, I think I want to write my own play. And Natalie, her initial response is, really? Okay, sure, go ahead, give it a shot. And she's like, all right, thanks. I knew you'd be supportive of me. You're such a great friend, bye. And then Natalie says, oh, absolutely, go have at it. And then as Tootie leaves the room, under her breath, Natalie turns to Blair and says, she'll be laughed off the stage. I loved that delivery as a kid. It made me laugh. And it made me laugh yeah. today. I watched it this morning. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So the next scene, we're still in the store. And now it's Mrs. Garrett and Natalie going over the shopping list, what needs to be done for this big uh, theater awards event. And they mentioned that there's a lot of heavy things. And Mrs. Garrett says, and Andy insisted on doing it all by himself. And it's like, so you you hired the child. <laughs> The little child, yeah. Which, yeah. you know, I mean, I don't know. I don't remember the 80s, but are there child labor laws? Like, can you have a child? Uh, like, working? No. Or at the very least. I don't want to set you off, David. I don't want to set you off. But I am oh. worried. I am wondering, can a child of 10 or 11 work in a retail environment? No. <laughs> Even if they add a line of like, well, since I only need the help for this one event. Mm -hmm. She does say she's not sure about it afterwards. She'd say, uh, he's being so sweet and I don't mind paying him a few dollars under the table. And uh, I talked to his mom and she's okay with it. Like that would have been the thing. Uh, right. Paul, help me. He does mention his mom in passing. And I don't remember how is Andy orphaned and then comes to be adopted by Beverly Ann. What is his situation right now? It changes three times within the show. So in the oh in the Jesus Christ, yeah. So in the first time he has parents, and then like this season later they'd be like, oh well, Andy's parents are out of town, so he's gonna hang out with us here, that kind of stuff. And then I think the next season, uh, with the season with Cloris Leachman, he, you go to Andy's grandmother's house because the parents are out of town, and then there's a big it, there's a big thing with the grandmother, a problem with you know with that, and so you go and have this great, you know. The great big set of the grandmother's house and everything. And then the next season, he's adopted and his parents are just said, sorry, we don't want you anymore. His foster parents said, bye. And the, the grandmother apparently died. I don't know, because she, they're gone. His family is gone and he's going to go back into the orphanage. <laughs> but, you know, that's for that's for, for you to freak out later, David. Yeah, okay. So right, now, know. right now, we're just happy that he has a mother who yeah. doesn't mind him working child labor for exactly. an old lady and all these girls. 
it's okay. And maybe he's lying. Maybe we can retroactively say, well, he was lying because he, he, he was actually uh, wanting the money to go buy food and, you know, yeah. buy a he new was, cardboard box he, to live under. He was the best dressed orphan in Peekskill. <laughs> yes, he was. Yes, he was. So the running joke here is that the door opens up and in come Blair and Joe carrying all the heavy stuff. And... And he is saying, "What? Wait, wait a minute! Let me take those. You're paying me to do this." And he says, "I want to earn your respect." So they finally do let him carry them, and he's like, Ugh. "You can see he's struggling, but he does it." And which I always thought, which I always thought was the best bag of prop potatoes you'll ever see. Maybe <laughs> 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 looks like there's heavy potatoes in it. You know, <clears throat> jumps in. He already has a heavy box, and then Joe dumps this big, which I wouldn't do. I mean, even yeah. if he said do it, I'd be like, no, this kid is going to knock you over. But she does it, and a great bag of prop potatoes, I think. But yeah, good. That's a prop swing. We'll give them that for this episode. Yeah. Uh, but the deal is, it happens more throughout the episode that. They are clearly a place of, well, he's a kid. I'm going to carry the heavy thing. And he's like, no, this is what I do. And, um, and, and that, again, brings into question, why would they keep him around? And uh, so that, that will come up again later. But now we are in a very, very hairy situation, Paul. Because we have a scene lit that was cut from syndication that, in my opinion, ruins the episode that they cut it ruins the episode is what you're saying that that it was cut it's like it, there is a part of it that now the episode does not make sense okay and it eventually figure we figure out what's happening is here is that as they're going over the contract joe blair mrs garrett joe says wait a minute why does this say 100 pastries for only 50 cents a piece that's less than they cost us and Blair is like, guys, this is business. You need to lose money on some things and make it up on other things. And Mrs. Garrett takes it and she says, it says 50 cents. At 100, and, 100 pastries at 50 cents. Yeah. So they are making uh, $50 for this entire thing. Uh, but then Blair talks about um, and then and then Joe grabs the contract and continues reading and says, hors d'oeuvres, free, cheese and crackers included, coffee, no charge. She's like, what the fuck are we billing them for, Blair? Where are we making up this money? And that's it. Later in the episode, they are pushing the champagne and the napkins, mm -hmm. which is weird. $1.95. $1.95. What by osmosis we eventually figure out is, oh, I guess they're charging them for the champagne and the napkin. Why the fuck would you charge them for napkins? That That's a little illogical. But the scene that that was cut from syndication is where Blair says, we make it up on the champagne. And they're like, what if they don't drink? And Blair says, these are theater people. Ha <laughs> ha, good joke. Yeah. Um, and then Blair says, besides, we have our ace in the hole. And one of them says, don't tell me. What, are you going to charge them for napkins? And Blair says, a dollar each. And Mrs. Garrett says, I don't feel right about that. They only cost us a nickel. And this is, and Blair is like, girl, this is how you're going to make it up. Let me give you a little advice about how to run a business. Never question me. Mm -hmm. 
And so that's an important plot point because now yeah. later in the episode, when they're walking around with little trays of hors d'oeuvres, they're like champagne, napkin, champagne, champagne napkin. napkin. Yes. And I did miss that. You know, I, I do. I did remember that scene. And I, when I watched the syndicated version today, I did miss it. I thought, oh, that was such a great scene where you find that out. And they, and then they just go straight to the kitchen where, you know, <laughs> they're, 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 you know, tasting the different hors d'oeuvre samples. And that's when you hear champagne napkin for the first time. That's how they're going to make the money. And you're yeah. like, oh, so that, that, that you're right. That scene really, it, it was lost. It was lost. Yeah, it was. It was, particularly because that next scene you're talking about, uh, where we go from here is, it looks like a taste test. Mm-hmm. And my thought was, okay, are we checking out to see if the cheaper hors d'oeuvres might be able to suffice? I'm sorry, the pastries uh, the idea is I'm like, is this maybe them trying to cut corners, trying to correct the the big oops that was pointed out earlier? And so Blair takes a bite of one of the pastries and then she goes, <laughs> and then they hand her a champagne and a napkin. She takes a sip, wipes her mouth, and she goes, there, $1.95. Like, like yeah. booyah, we got it yeah. made. Which, and you know, make- gosh, I would love to have champagne and napkin for $1.95 these days, but whatever. <laughs> I would need a, yes. like $10 and I'd be good for the day. But anyway. Yeah. And and that doesn't make any sense whatsoever without that bit that was cut, which is which is really too bad. Yeah. But then Natalie pops her head in and says, where's Tootie? And they're like, oh, well, she's not here. And she's like, good. And she comes into the room. She's trying to avoid Tootie because she read the play and it's lousy. And then through and a afraid. series you know, she, she doesn't know how to tell her that it's lousy because she's afraid so here's my question we've all been there we've all seen our dear friends and productions and stuff that might not be the best and i'm sure they people have seen you've, you've probably seen me in some that are the best but what do you <laughs> what do you say to your friends in that situation do you have a, do you have some standards that you um, go by i mean because and we all love our friends we've been in bad productions yeah. as well you know, well, here's the the deal. Like theater is great because we all know how completely subjective it is. So it, you can I don't have a problem going to friends saying, hey, I love you. You are always awesome. The show was not my cup of tea. Yeah. There have been times when friends have not been awesome. That happens to all of us. Yeah. I've, I've been that guy many yeah. times. Yeah. And that's where it's just I you know, I always love seeing you perform. You know, I, your voice is the voice of an angel. Mm-hmm. Uh, that type of, you know, there's, there's always positive to be found. And, um, and sometimes typically we know later in hindsight, yeah, no, and say, I, you know, that wasn't a good role for me. And that's where you can say, yeah, you, you, it was probably a little bit of miscasting, but you did a great job with it. You still sang it great. And sometimes all you can do, especially like, for example, the Orlando Fringe Festival, you know, mm-hmm. you don't know until you're in it if it's going to be good or not. <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? You, so true. So, you so just true. Kind of go, well, I kind of like that director and oh, I, I, I like his music sometimes. And then you just kind of got to hope for the best, you know, and yeah. I can say that in my like shows that I've done at Orlando, half of them I thought were great and half of them I thought were questionable, but you don't know until you're in it. And sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes you don't know till the show opens and the audience loves it. And you go, I thought this was a piece of shit, but yes. they love it. you know what I mean? You're like, okay, well, I'm in the big hit of Orlando fringe. And I had no idea because I thought yeah. it was gonna be a piece of shit, you know? So yeah, you never know. You never know. Yeah. I'm sure I'll lose whatever friends if they listen to this, uh, that directed. or wrote <laughs> the show. Well, why don't you list them by name, Paul? Tell First, me who we'll have you... 2009. I'm kidding. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> We're going to move on. But we've all but, been but there. There's, 
But yeah. there, there are two things that I keep in my back pocket. Number mm-hmm. one, it's an Ethel Merman quote that Harvey Firestein does in his comedy album, where he says, after Torch Song Trilogy, Ethel Merman met him backstage and he had never met her before. And he was thrilled. And he's like, Oh my God, I'm meeting the legendary. And he says in Harvey Firestein, he says, tell me Miss Merman, what did you think of the show? Cause he wrote it as well as started it. And Ethel Merman said, I thought it was a piece of shit, but the rest of the audience laughed and cried. So what the fuck do I know? <laughs> that's brilliant. That I'm is brilliant. It. I'm stealing it. I'm stealing it from Ethel. Steal that's it. Brilliant. It is brilliant. And that's in the, you can just say in the words of Ethel Merman. That's <laughs> perfect. Isn't it? So perfect. I needed that on a t-shirt. I need that on little cards. I need it like on a stamp. I need, I need that. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the other great. one that I do, particularly for writing, I always preface what I say is, well, if you were writing this play to please me, and I know that is not the reason why you put pen to paper, much as I would love to believe that every person looks at a blank page and says, now, what is it that David Almeida would love to see me write today? If only Paul Haggis had thought of that before he started this damn episode, David. Yep. Thank you. So I always say if it was written and, you know, really and truly, that's the overarching thing of this entire podcast is if the Facts of Life episodes existed in a state to please me and nobody else, (laughs) this is what I would change. Yeah. And I do know, even though I get really passionate and really at times, you know, insolent and belligerent about some of these stupid writing mistakes they make, I'm aware it's just like, hey, the show somehow was still a hit for nine seasons. So what the fuck do I know? So, um, so that's my, that's my sort of go-to that is, that has helped me out of a lot of jams. That's given me free license to be as critical as I want to be, but with constantly reinforcing. And I know you may not want that. That's it. Those are good. You know, Those are good. I always get, I always fuck it up. I'm always just like, I just give him a hug and I'm like, I love you. I mean, <laughs> it's just horrible. I say the, the, the dumbest things, but you know, I just don't have a good, uh, I think I'm going to mm-hmm. have to go with Miss Merman's now because I'm always just like, yeah. Hey, oh, I love you. And oh, so fun. That was, that was so a fun. play. You, you oh. did that. Wow. Yeah. That thing. Look at you up there. Yeah. Yeah. Another backhanded compliment that I don't use because it's so brilliant. You could say, wow, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed that. <laughs> I really can't. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I can't. Yeah. Yep, That's and my funny. friend, veteran actor J.D. Sutton, his one of his favorites is that. Wow, yeah, you you should have been in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yep, it, it ain't easy. So yep. you know, I, I can I can uh, sympathize with Natalie in this situation. Mm-hmm. In the yes, but the deal is, we have all of their friendship as a foundation. They are ba-ba-besties. So when we get to the point that Tootie finally does corner Natalie and the moment, this is my favorite moment from the show. I love this. This is an A-plus moment where the script is on the counter. When Tootie says, well, is there anything you didn't like? And Natalie just takes the script and slides it across the counter to Tootie. Perfectly timed perfect way to non-verbally express what she's trying to say and um we break for commercial in the middle of this and then it kind of continues as we go but what it boils down to is tootie is deeply offended that she as an actress wrote this play in one weekend 
and her best friend, who we know to be a talented, gifted writer, and the fact that Natalie criticized it, Tootie becomes a garbage person. So sarcastic and detached and overly formal. And, well, why are you talking so formally? Well, I know you hate it when people butcher the language. You hate it when dialogue is stilted. And yeah. here's the here's the fix for me, is that we had this two weeks ago with The Rich Aren't Different with Jen Warren. Or is that three weeks ago, actually? The Rich Aren't Different, where I said, Joe was an asshole. All they had to do was bump up Blair to her level of assholeness, and then we could see this being an evenly matched, true conflict. Right. She wasn't. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, no, this is not a true conflict because nothing that Natalie says is evil or bad or insulting. And later when Tootie is like, you were just so confident about how much you disliked it. And Natalie was kind of like, yeah, yeah, and I'm sorry, but I think, did we, I don't know, I think that, like, didn't she ask advice from the girls, and the girls were like, lie to her, tell her it was great, tell her yeah. you loved her. And of course, Mrs. Garrett is like, you can't lie to her. But, so she was taking the, she had, she had two things she could do, you know, take Mrs. G's advice, take the girls' advice. She took the girls' advice, tell her you loved it, it'll make everything easier. So, yeah, you know, she's her friend, she, she obviously doesn't want to lie to her, so she's going to tell her, you know, the truth. And the thing is, what's missing here among the many, many things missing in this episode is if Natalie was truly a gifted writer, a writer can express to another person that they don't like something, but also make suggestions about how it could improve, even to the point of, I really think it would showcase your acting better if this happened. If you do this, this, and that, I think they'll get into the story more, and therefore they'll like you better. She was the Uh, editor of the high school paper. Yeah talking about that's all it and so we do have to address that the title of this episode is me and eleanor because tootie has written this one woman play where she is going to play eleanor roosevelt yep and natalie does have a funny line thank Mm -hmm. god it is addressed where she says tootie um i don't know how to tell you this but you're black And granted, nowadays we have so much more. uh, You hear about colorblind casting, about you know all that. Um, We so much in 1985, but yeah, yeah, that was definitely not a thing. There's a big thing right now. The big thing about colorblind casting is that the the problem being the converse of where you have a production of West Side Story, and you have two Latino people in it, and everyone else is white people. So yeah, the 1980s. This was not a time where colorblind casting was a thing this is this is still this is honestly still a time when you would have uh asian people latino people being played by white folks in makeup and prosthetics and uh, i'm fairly sure we still thought it was okay at the time and that's unfortunate oh another andy thing andy helps uh, offers to build 2d her set yes and he brings in this forced perspective cardboard cutout drawing of the White House. And they're all like, (laughs) it's huge. And they're all like, oh, this is kind of, it is a bit broader and more cartoonish than one would expect it to be. It is fucking brilliant. It's like, child, why are you not a prodigy illustrator for fuck's sake? 
Exactly. Yeah. And this is another time when they're having the exchange of the girls trying to figure out how to say that they think it's crap or whatever. He has these little these these little moments, these little smirks. Like you can tell he's engaged in the scene, but he's not quite, you know what I mean? Like he's he's you can tell he wants to just it's almost there, you know, that his, his reactions that he wants to do. And, but he's still, it's his first episode, you know, but I can see him starting to get the rhythm that the girls have. And it's like, Oh, I can do this. I can do this. And then particularly in that scene, I see his wheels turning for his reaction. Yeah. 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 I, I think you're right. Totally. Um, here's something that just occurred to me. This would have been a way to fix the episode. Have Natalie be way more blunt and dismissive and condescending to Tootie over this play have natalie be a fucking bitch about it mm-hmm. then tootie's response would be commensurate with that because right now tootie is like i said tootie is awful in this episode yeah. because it's very literally pouty, I, very, very childish very yeah, yeah it's i wrote a play you don't like it but she's just having a fucking tantrum reinforcing that she's the baby of the group well wouldn't it have been great if natalie was blunt nasty cunty and condescending and then Andy brings in this set piece, which is well-drawn, but not well-matched. And watch Natalie waffle a bit and find ways to let him down easily. Maybe if there were time to make another set, have Natalie say, Andy, you know what? It would be better if it was this ABC instead of that. And have Andy be like, oh, okay, great, cool. And then go off and do it. Then Tootie would be justified to later say, I reacted so badly because you were so mean and nasty about it. You Mm -hmm. were able to be nice to Andy. Why do you think you don't owe me the same level of respect? And then we go to me and Eleanor part two, (laughs) the next week, special two episode, (laughs) special two episode uh, version. Yeah, that's all right. Um, Yeah. Well, I mean, we'd cut all this napkin bullshit with the party and all that. I, w- I would have eliminated that whole B story or whatever. Champagne, napkin. Yeah. Yeah. It's it. The payoff is not there. You have to yeah. say this whole champagne napkin thing. The payoff is not there. Who charges champagne by the glass? Who charges per napkin? When you're catering, you give a flat rate based on the number of people. And you say, this is as much food as going to. It's like, you should know this, people. If you're writing this shit, if you're writing for a catering company, you should know how catering companies work. There, I said it. <laughs> so, Natalie does change her tune. In the in the name of being friends, Natalie comes back and says, you know what, I read it again, and I love it. I think it's terrific. It's going to be magnificent. When Mrs. Garrett does say, you're lying. Judy instantly, Judy instantly is happy again. Oh, thanks, Natalie. Thanks. Yeah. She gives her a hug, like, you're the best. And I'm like, what? Yeah, which makes her more of a garbage person. Right. I'm sorry. Um, so then we go to the after party. Now we're at the party. Tootie is off moping on the side of the stage, the left side of the screen. She's there dressed in her Eleanor Roosevelt, moping and clearly. And her horrible, very floral, big shouldered 1980s Eleanor Roosevelt costume that Mrs. Garrett tells her earlier you know, I don't you think it's a little loud? Tootie Eleanor was a very distinguished woman. Yeah, Tootie doesn't take her doesn't take her advice, and she just looks at N- uh, N- Natalie and says, "She's so not show people." And here's, but that was an example of Mrs. Garrett trying to give her feedback in a nice way, but she still didn't take it. And then yeah. she the most horrible costume she could have to be Eleanor Roosevelt. So come on, Tootie. Yes. And and again, that could have been brought up. That could have been another teaching moment where it's like Mrs. Garrett beautifully says, 
they're both a little loud. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, she says, don't you think they're a little loud? Good language. Mm-hmm. And then she says, Eleanor Roosevelt was a very dignified woman. And I'm not sure I could imagine her addressing the UN dressed in one of these two dresses. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so Tootie, does, so Tootie, Tootie is an egomaniac garbage person i'm going to keep coming back to that that's what that's that's the theme of this that's what what's going on here. i don't think i've ever used that term before now i'm going to say it all the time they yeah. were a garbage person i i think it was garen jones that gave me that term many years ago at the citizens of hollywood uh, dressing room there i've, I've used uh, ass a lot i like asshat but i've never used garbage person so an asshat no garbage person really really speaks to me i'm gonna use that a lot now so then we get to the party now. We've kind of done this sort of backtracking, forward-tracking synopsis of the episode. Then we get to the party. Tootie is moping off in the corner on the side, in that in the sidelines, in plain sight. And they're serving hors d'oeuvres. And Mrs. Garrett brings a tray of hors d'oeuvres to this older woman uh, who we see in the credits is Mrs. Pickering. So she's the one that hired. She was the woman on the phone. We don't oh. realize that. It's not told to us, but that's who it is. Okay. Um, this actress is a very decorated actress, Kathleen Cordell. 62 credits in a 47-year career, not including radio and stage credits. And uh, you recognize her from a million things, and you can't name one of them. And then with her is Shane McCabe as I Mr. Burgess. Love this man. I think he's hilarious. I don't know what you feel. Take a breath, but I think he's What do so- you what 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 archetype do you think he's playing here, Paul? Well, definitely he's playing the archetype of playing the, a person that I've met many, many times, like in the theater, in the mm-hmm. community theater, the community theater, the older gay gentleman, in this case, slightly plump, which I am right now because of COVID, so that's fine. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I'm very round at the moment, but that's okay. Had a good time. But just, you know, criticizing the theater in every possible way with his attitude and his, you know, nose in the yeah. air. And it's 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 a person that I've been around. It's a person that I've seen in the lobbies of many theaters at intermission and, and afterwards with a drink. And yeah. Let's get real. And sometimes we've been this person. Oh, let's, absolutely. For reals. Real. I mean, that's what that's yeah. this whole podcast. That's I'm Except- I'm basically being I'm being Mr. Burgess to this entire series. This is true. But this is true. It just hit he me. Is, he is the stereotypical bitchy theater queen. Mm-hmm. And the actor plays it beautifully. There's no indication of his sexuality, but he knows. He's playing it gay. So well. So and well. his line is, I have to say this. The woman says it was awful. And then he says, I should have known from the program." Tootie Ramsey is Eleanor Roosevelt. I felt like writing in, no, you're not. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, my thoughts are, she's right there. She can fucking hear you. Yeah, it's, they're they're people. They don't care. That's As I said, the actor is Shane McCabe. He doesn't have quite as many credits as Ms. Cordell. And the reason why I typically do deep dive on the actors is I like to make sure that do they appear at any other time. I was going to uh, ask through, because I'd never looked him up. I just thought he was great. You know, I, th- I told myself, oh, I'll just wait because David will know who that is. But, yep, uh, exactly. They do not ever appear on the Facts of Life again in this or any other role. I would I would have loved for him to come in and be the snobby. He could have been the great snobby gay. You know, again, it's a gourmet food store. You mean exactly. you don't have 
pickled beets from Guatemala. Exactly. <laughs> He's so funny. Yep. It's awesome. And Mrs. Garrett is trying to hold her tongue because she, it's Tootie. It's her Tootie. And he's insulting her. So this brought further questions because I'm like, so was that the only thing? Was that the only performance in this award show? Was that the, uh, uh, this, I'm not going to go there again. This just further confuses me because even if he had said, oh, of all the things I had to sit through tonight, that was by far the worst. Yes. It great, is weird. great. It is Thank you. you. Yeah, it is weird that you see patrons and then Tootie. No, no, and they're, they're, apparently they couldn't, well, they obviously couldn't house the actors because the place is so small because they didn't have it in a convention center. They had it at Edna's Edibles. But uh, yeah, it's just 2D, just 2D. Still in costume. Still in costume, inexplicably. <laughs> but the other thing is that very typical of these events, you would know, as as do I, that one of the things about doing a reception after some type of a, a presentation, it's, it's always meet the cast, talk to the cast afterwards. So you would expect there to be a lot of performers there. And you and I know that we would definitely attend this event if there was free fucking food. Absolutely. Even even a dollar ninety five for a champagne and a napkin, I'd be there. But, you know, hey. that's. Yeah. Hey, Mrs. Pickering's paying for this shit, not us. Oh, yeah. Actors will go to uh -huh. free food, you know, free food. Little hors d'oeuvres, oh, yeah. my favorite. Yeah. I love yeah. those. Oh, yeah. You you say the word reception, always. It's like, <laughs> we're there. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, does he also say this line? I know she's an amateur, but don't they screen these people? Yes, he does. I think that is one of his lines, too. I wrote it down. Um so then Natalie goes over to Tootie. Hey, Tootie, everyone's looking for you. Right here, standing in the... In the corner. In the corner of the small retail shop where everybody can clearly see you. <sighs> Bad writing. Which, but you know, you get a little bit a little bit more view of that corner that you don't get to see very often in the show. You know, that little back corner. Sometimes you see people doing inventory, but just, that, just the camera shot is like a couple more inches you see of the set that you never saw before. Yeah, true. Yeah. So if 2D, if if at this point in the episode, 2D hasn't already been enough of a garbage person, now complaining about how badly she flopped, that they laughed through her death scene, that uh, it was just terrible. And Natalie tries to be supportive, like, ah, it wasn't that bad. Ah, whatever, you know, Natalie's being a good friend. 2D then proceeds to get mad at Natalie accusing her of being a bad friend because, in Tootie's words, you let me go out there and embarrass myself. Mm -hmm. And Natalie says, correctly, I did everything I could to try and stop you from doing what you just did. And Tootie says, you didn't do enough. And Natalie says, you didn't want to hear. And... Tootie says, anyone can criticize and walk away. You should have stuck with me even when I didn't want you to. Oh, fuck you, bitch. I'm making two middle fingers to my Zoom screen. No, you are a garbage person. <laughs> is the point where Tootie should have been like, wow, you said my play was terrible and I should have believed you. But then to say almost from a place of hurt, but why did you come back to me and tell me it was good? And, and you know, and the, 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 back to my earlier notes, if Natalie had been terrible to Tootie, this would have been 
a much better, more evenly matched argument. This is just Tootie being a more garbagey garbage person. This episode. Now, another great, another great moment for our favorite character of the episode is he's trying to get some some food. Yes, what is he, he trying to do? Natalie has a tray of hors d'oeuvres, right? Yes. And he keeps yeah. reaching and trying to get one. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's like it's, it's it's between them when they're arguing. And Tootie, uh, I think the, the one funny moment that Kim Fields has in this is when she's they're they're arguing and she's like, excuse me, this is a private conversation. And then she's talking and talking. And of course, that Queenie theater guy just wants to try to sneak in to get a cheese puff or whatever it is. And she just says, do you want to wear that? And it's just the way she does it. She just screams them in the middle of the uh, argument. It's funny. And I'm like, okay, she got one in. She got one mm-hmm. funny moment in the, in the episode. But um, yeah, he's such a yes. funny character. I would play him in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the overall tone and problem with this resolution where they do eventually come back to being friends here is that Natalie is in no way, shape or form wrong. Natalie did nothing, nothing, 0.0% wrong. Mm -hmm. Even in lying to her and going back and saying, well, I went back and read the play and it was good. To to do that, to say, well, I guess I gotta gotta make amends. I've gotta do what I have to do so that she won't be acting like a fucking bitch to me the whole time. I do not, I am team Natalie 150,000% in this episode. Good, I'm glad you said that. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. And the nice thing is they do resolve it as Mrs. Garrett walks up. Mrs. Garrett doesn't have to play referee here. This is their growing up moment and all that. And so then the last moment of the episode, after Tootie and Natalie have patched things up, that's our that's our A story, the me and Eleanor story. Well, our B story is that uh, a woman walks up to Mrs. Garrett. This woman's name is Mrs. Jane Kings, not and Jane I- Kins. I feel like I've seen her a hundred times and I don't know from where. Do you not recognize her, Paul? No, but I recognize her, but I don't recognize her. This Wait. is actress Cress Mursky. Cress Mursky played Miss Ames yes. back in season five, in, in, in episodes one and two. In the dorm, in the dorm, right? She was the dorm monitor, different character, same yeah. actress. I thought there was her, but she has, obviously her hair looks great now. And it so she looks, you know, she looked yeah. different, but I knew her from somewhere. So that's it. Yeah, Mrs. Ames. Yeah. Yeah. She's really good. It was funny. And she had like four lines and then she got a laugh at the end. You know what I mean? Like she yeah. just, she, she did a great job. Yeah. Yeah. Now this role is a little more utilitarian, but they do have her, like you say, dressed up, decked out. She's not in everyday street clothes. She's in her a theater going best. And so she says to Mrs. Garrett, I didn't know you could make a quiche in the shape of a star of David. Which made me, as a kid, look up the Star of David. I had no idea oh, what it was. Oh, you didn't no know what that what was. There was a little educational moment for Paul Padilla in 1985. I was like, what, what the hell is the Star of David? So I looked it up. Yeah. yeah. Teaching moment. Yeah. And Mrs. Garrett says, a Star of David? What, what the fuck are you talking about, lady? <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. I don't know if it was quite like that. But yeah, so yeah, yeah. I get it. I get it. Yeah. And so Mrs. Jenkins says, well, your assistant over there just told me that you could do that. And we look over, and little Andy is sitting at the table. Cute little smirk, smirk. yeah. Adorable, all by himself. He kind of waves like, hey, how's it going? And so Mrs. Garrett's like, oh, my assistant. And then uh, Mrs. Jenkins goes on to say, that would be perfect for our bar mitzvah that we're throwing next Saturday. 
Uh-huh. Don't freak out. Jewish woman. Don't freak out. Don't freak out. I don't want you to be like, why did they not plan a month ago what they were going to serve it? <laughs> That's what I'm waiting for you to say. That's what I'm waiting for you to say. Why didn't, who doesn't plan what they're going to eat a week from now for their bat mitzvah? These writers, God damn it. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm just, I'm doing it for you. There you go. That's what I always thought was, they don't, they don't have food for the reception next week. I always thought that. But anyway, so there, yeah. I, gave, I gave you one, David. I gave you one. Well, thank you. It did occur to me, and that was one of the that that bothered me the least of everything in the episode. To be honest, <laughs> that's the thing that bothered me. That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. and we could put bacon in it. <laughs> but, uh, so, um, anyhow, very quickly, um, Mrs. Garrett is like, well, well, "Yeah, oh yes, I could so do that, and yes, we could take care of your bar mitzvah next Saturday." And then she says, see me after the party and we'll, we'll get all the details. Great. Wonderful. And this woman walks away happy as a clam. And Mrs. Garrett, just this thing is going to clearly pay off as she hoped where she's going to get more business. So then she exchanges a glance with Andy and she walks over to the counter. And now this is where the piano music starts to play. I to the piano play music. us off. Play us off, Paul Schaefer. Yeah. Um, and she picks, she pulls out the man wanted sign from under the counter. And Andy looks at her like, what's, uh, what's happening here? And she takes the sign and she tears it in half. And Andy smiles, oh. his big, beautiful smile. Cause he knows he now has a home, a work home, slave labor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He now knows he is a part of the long tradition of sweatshops and underage labor underpaid unskilled labor um but we're we're happy about that we're we're, happy. we're, gonna... we're happy and he stays he doesn't get lost like kelly we know you don't like kelly uh, like, oh, and, uh, or, fuck kelly the kid that was helping mrs garrett what was his name again from revenge of the nerds craig craig you know all these kids pippa yeah. came in later for a little i mean you know andy yeah. comes and, and stays for a yeah while. he's this he ain't no cinnamon he's here to stay and we're happy about it and i can and it's so nice to say that you know a childhood crush is still a crush in adulthood because he's still cute as hell. He's so adorable. He is so attractive. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Just the perfect blend of like sexy and nerdy and cute. And just, I love it. I just think he's so damn good. Yeah. So. Yeah. And in all my talk for him, I I did miss the fact that uh, he is now 47 years old and Mackenzie Aston is still working. He's still got stuff going on. He has appeared in Scandal, The Magicians, Homeland, Lost, House, Psych, Grey's Anatomy and NCIS. And you know, I always like to cite how many credits a person has in their career over what span of time. Uh, Mackenzie Aston actually started working in 1982 when he was nine years old. So he has a, like one or two credits before this. But based on starting in 1982, as of today, 2021, his 39 year career has garnered 110 credits. That's amazing. I, you know, one of my favorite, actually my favorite film uh, is Terms of Endearment. One of my favorite films. I think it's mm-hmm. a masterclass in acting and directing and writing. Oh, yes. Great movie. Yeah, it's one of my, it is my favorite. And uh, of course, when they had the the sequel, which was shit, called The Evening Star, the, the only mm-hmm. thing I liked about it was he plays one of Deborah Winger's sons. You know, she's passed away, but he's the, yeah. he's, he's the youngest son. You know, the, the, you see the kid crying in the in the first movie that tears your heart out. In the sequel, yeah. he plays that role as an adult. And so um, that was nice for me because the rest of the movie was crap. But um, mm-hmm. I pretend like- Wait a minute. Have- 
Deborah Winger dies. Oh, crap. Spoiler alert. I'm so sorry. Oh, my God. Oh, I'm such a dick. I'm such a dick. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's always nice to see him pop up. Like I said, he's still a crush. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, it. he was not only a crush for me in my childhood, but like I said before, he he was the example of my wardrobe growing up. So, uh-huh. yeah, Do you to... have any photos of, of yourself in Andy Moffat garb that you might be able to send uh-huh. me and I could share on the website? I mean, I'm here at the at the homestead in Texas, so I'm sure I could go through some uh, some books. That's how I found the Mindy Cohen picture. Is I started going through all, through all these books that my mom had in boxes. So um, I'll uh-huh. definitely give it a shot. Maybe I can find. A, I know I definitely one of my favorites was the, the, later in the Elder Barge episode. Like I had that exact same uh, outfit, and then he had like a gray suit that I had for. I wore to all the quinceañeras, and I remember my mom bought me this awesome like suit, gray kind of structured Andy Moffat gray suit with the yellow tie, the skinny uh-huh. yellow tie that he had. And uh, every time I would be asked to be in a quinceanera, because when you turn 15, all the my girlfriends all had quinceaneras. So you had to be in mm-hmm. them. At, at some point, my mom's like, you know, I bought you this really expensive suit at structure so you could look like Andy. That's what you're wearing at all the quinceaneras. Probably find a picture of me at a quinceanera. <laughs> the only boy in I want to see it. I want to see it. Please <laughs> share it. I will share it on the website. Yeah, I'm the same way. I think I, you know, and I I need to find these and I'll actually give you one because I had like 15 of them. Mm -hmm. When this is for the the seasons you don't like, but I sent like 15 fan letters and then I got through a machine. They sent me like glossies with all their pictures on it and like stamps of their, 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 but I had like, I have like 15. I just have to find them. I'll definitely give you some. If you can, you know, I would love them. I would love them. Well, here we are at the end of another one, Paul. Thank you, David. Thank you for inviting me back on my favorite season of the facts of life and one of my absolute favorite episodes of the facts of life i think we did okay we did okay together it was a good like i I think we did you liked the episode and i proved to you why you are wrong yes i mean the uh the the women of the view have nothing on us we did it (laughs) we didn't fight we didn't scream we were fine breaths and uh yeah yeah, no, it was great and always a pleasure to get to see you on my Zoom and get to catch up with you. And thanks again. And you know, I always sign off smooches and goodbye. Mwah. Yeah, thanks. Bye. And there you have it. That was Paul Padilla. I'm in a quiet space now, away from the actual viewing of the Super Bowl. So I uh, hope you he can hear me better. And uh, again, retroactive apologies for the actual interview sound quality being weird, but uh, we'll be back to normal next week, should be, so uh, just hold on, it gets better. Next week, I'm going to be watching season six, episode 15, called Working It Out. And you can watch the show for free at dailymotion.com. I will post a link in the show notes, and you can also find it at this show's webpage. That's all for now. Thanks so much for listening to this week's show. And remember, the facts of life are all about you. Let's Face the Facts was created, produced, written, hosted, and edited by me, David Almeida. My theme song was beautifully arranged and recorded by Ned Wilkinson. Visit my website, facethefactspod.com, for supplemental photos and videos, audio extras from the digital cutting room floor, 
links to my social media, and ways that you can support the show financially. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in again next week for another thrilling episode of Let's Face the Facts.